Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to www.historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, this is another of our continuing series on the moves of historical thinking or what historical thinking can do for you. For if history is a way of seeing the past, then it is also a way of knowing the past. And that means that history can teach habits of seeing and knowing that are useful for everyone, not just for professionals with graduate degrees. Today, I'm talking with David Staley about context. The official definition for this podcast of context, which as always is in the form of a question, very rabbinical, is what background knowledge helps us understand these documents? For example, a sentence in a memoir reading, after our wedding, my husband traveled alone to California, has a very different weight if it was written in 1850 than if it was written, say, in 1935. It's the difference in weight between the California Gold Rush and the Dust Bowl, or to be literary, between Mark Twain and John Steinbeck. David Staley is an associate professor of history at The Ohio State University, where he holds courtesy appointments in the Departments of Design, where he has taught courses in design history and design futures, and educational studies. His research interests include digital history, the philosophy of history, historical methodology, and the history and future of higher education. This is his third appearance on the podcast. He has previously been on to talk about alternative universities and the history of the future, wherein we talk with my friend Brent Orell about life after COVID, four months after COVID hit the United States. I have not reviewed that conversation to see how wrong we were. <laughs> I, I, have you? No. I, I, <laughs> do, do you check up on your on your uh, statements, uh, your, your, your forecasting ever? Or? I, I do, I, sure. I, You hate to say predictions. I, I yeah, how, how can yeah, you not? Good, good for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Uh, because, uh, I mean, I'm always struck by the number of uh, – uh, established historians who have written a great deal who never look back at the previous books. You know, uh, it's a form it's of like ego surfing, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I, it's it, uh, but it, it's hard. It's harder than I re- realized. So let's talk about context. I just said, uh, what background knowledge helps us understand these documents? How would you define context? So um, I uh, I like that definition um, that it's the uh, it is all the variables uh, of a given situation. That's a really uh, sort of scientific and maybe unpoetic sort of definition, <clears throat> but um, uh, a consideration of and an understanding of uh, all the variables in a in a particular event or a particular situation. And I so, that, by variables, you mean? Well, in the way that, say, for instance, a uh, you know a scientist would uh, would would talk about some sort of event or talk about some sort of uh, happening uh, in terms of the variables that are occurring. And I'm using mm-hmm. this language very deliberately because I think it's one of the things that separates historians and and our method and our habit of uh, our, and the way that we think about problems from, say, scientists. Um, okay. T- talk more about that. That's very interesting. So I think that one of the things that defines uh, sci- the, the scientific method or a scientific approach, especially when we're looking like at the social sciences, <clears throat> it's to, um, when you, again, you're looking at a situation, you're looking at, a, at an event, uh, is to hold some variables constant, let's say. Or let's say, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to worry about these variables. We're going to concentrate on these variables. Um, it is, and, and I'll just sort of finish that thought by saying that as historians, uh, we don't hold variables constant when we're studying the past. Um, another way of, uh, uh, of describing this is that, uh, scientists will often, uh, talk about dependent variables, for instance, and independent mm-hmm. variables. And I think as historians, we don't make those sorts of distinctions, uh, one of the reasons that's, that, that, that we find this in the scientific method, I think, is to uh, simplify some sort of complex problem. You oftentimes hear scientists, economists use this sort of language all the time, of creating a simplified model of some sort of situation as a way to better understand it. And I think my argument is that our method as historians is not to simplify uh, the model. Uh, we 
uh, accept and maybe even sort of wallow in uh, the complexity of some sort of situation. And it's that complexity, it's that, um, uh, in another context, a scientist might call it messiness. It's the messiness of a situation that uh, historians are particularly interested in and are particularly good at studying, I think. And it's that messiness that I would define as the context. So I want to say this without getting into, sidetracking into a criticism of social science, but um, oftentimes, uh, you know, I, I was in a department where we were in sort of the school of social sciences. And you're saying that is a category error that probably comes of its foundation in, say, the 60s or the 70s. Um, <laughs> that at, at one point, uh, we were sort of people, historians saw themselves as being more of the social sciences, but that's to fundamentally misunderstand what we're best at. So this is a debate that I have with my students uh, uh, every year, uh, and it's a uh, uh, it's an unusually impassioned debate, uh, especially no. among uh, history majors. Is history a science or an art? And that's a perennial yeah. sort of question, I suppose. And and indeed, I use as a sort of a marker of this uh, where is where in the university or where in the college structure are the uh, is history placed. So you say you were at a uh, you were an institution where history was in the social sciences. Uh, at my institution, history is in the humanities, uh -huh. and that's one of the interesting features I think of history is that it 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 can live in either one of those places. And you can't say that about too many disciplines. We wouldn't say that, for instance, about philosophy, of uh, right. uh, or, or English. We would you know we would know where those would sit, or or indeed sociology, mm -hmm. right? We would we would know right. uh, uh, pretty certainly where these fit. History, and again, uh, uh, you could you could sort of survey universities across the country. Where does the history department lie? And I'm uh, any 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 number I would give would be an artificial artificially. Uh, <laughs> Uh, precise sort of measure, but my guess is it could probably be something like fifty-fifty. Uh, yeah. In which case, I, we I, might I say you... that may, maybe history is, in fact, a hybrid discipline. That's an interesting survey. I, I wish I had a research assistant or a grad student to go do that. It would make it would be really interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> this gets into also like change over time, which we're not talking about in this question. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you twenty-five bucks and a box of donuts that it would depend also when the department was founded or yes. the school was founded. Yes. Yeah, you're not taking that bet. No, I won't take okay. that bet. No, I think you're. I think you're. You're. You're quite right there. Um. So, let's let's tease that apart a little bit more. Um. So, what then? Um. Yeah. In many ways, I as you were talking, I was thinking about being an impassioned as an undergraduate. I think I left political science precisely because I was disillusioned with lack of context. I was, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I wanted to major in history where there was lots of context. So you have to tell me a little more about that because I think I have a very similar story to this. So what do you mean that yeah, political well, I was, science well, lacked context? I was in a, I was one of the best classes I took was uh, contemporary international politics with Stephen David, who's a fine fellow and a, and a, um, charismatic lecturer, and I uh, loved it in many many ways. But by the end of my sophomore year, I had um, thought. You know, I probably made reference to this before. We read, as was classic back in the late Cold War, you read Thucydides' Peloponnesian War as a model of great power relations and leading towards the sort of degeneration of the sort of the now Graham Allison's Thucydides trap, um, which is um, an extrapolation of a very complex situation about a bunch of Greeks. <laughs> but it was the Greekness of the Peloponnesian War that we ended up ignoring. It was the specificity of the context. I don't think I would have used those words at the time that we were ignoring. And meanwhile, I was also taking classes with very charismatic um, historians of France, analysts, as it happens. I've made reference to that. And they were, of course, uh, very much about, uh, you know, the only durée, the only good durée is a long durée. And, but at the same time, they were very into context, even though they were into the l'ordre, um, and uh, they hit that good and hard. Uh, somehow I saw a difference, and I was much more attracted to the historians, even in Annalise's way of, of regarding the past, 
than uh, a theorist of international politics. Hmm. For, uh, for me, it was economics. Uh, I was an economics major uh, until I took my first history class, which I took very reluctantly uh, because it was a requirement, right? You know, you had to have history. Very, yeah. very reluctantly took it. By the end of that class, I'd switched my major. Uh, and uh, huh. like you, I, I'm not certain I had the language for it at the time. I, I've developed the language ever since. This is my language uh, now, but, but I don't know what I said there. <laughs> <clears throat> so from and and so I was studying economics and this I'll show my age a little bit. So I was studying economics in the 80s when we were still under the thrall of uh of sort of you know Chicago school uh economics and it just struck me that the that the human not, beings not in my I was department studying, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that did, that did we were that we were yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, go on. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say it. It just struck me uh, that the that the human beings I was studying in economics uh, looked really fictional to me, uh, maximizers right. of pleasure and minimizers of pain, and you know, uh, choosing yeah. indifferently between Coke and Pepsi. Uh, and, and, and trust me, uh, even when you when you slog through Sam, when you slog through Samuelson's textbook as well, that that also is the case. That that was very much those those the. The homo economicus is often laid on the door of the of you know Gary Becker and Milton Friedman and uh, all the rest of them, but man, I I don't I think that was just the culture. I think that was just the it way was. that that was that was yeah that was much post forties moment as anything else. I think so. Well, and I think that the impact of it had had behavioral economics been um, the uh, the norm back in the eighties, maybe I would have uh, stayed in. In fact, I'm I'm fairly certain mm -hmm. I would have stayed in economics. But it was the comparison between economics and history, uh, and uh, especially the fact that uh, the people I was studying in history tended to be more real because mm -hmm. they were flawed, because they were irrational, because uh, uh, they uh, were driven as much by passions as they were by reason. Um, it, they just seemed more, they seemed more realistic to me. <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was a little uh, a time later um, I was working on my master's degree where I ended up, I, I ended up writing a master's thesis uh, on the history of economic thought. I guess I couldn't leave economics entirely. Uh, but I remember <laughs> reading a, um, a, an article. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to embarrass the author, but I will embarrass the journal. It was the journal of economic history. And this was an article that was uh, a, a really sort of arcane subject. It was studying the location of factories in uh, Ontario and Quebec in the 19th century, oh. something something along those lines. Oh my turn to goodness! Turn that to a, was that a, a method of euthanasia? <laughs> I mean, that's like the... <laughs> uh, I, I'm allowed to geek out over uh, over some things. Although yeah. this, I say, this yeah. article really, uh, if I was already sort of uh, convinced that history was the superior method, this article really did it for me, because you would go to page two of this article. And there was the list of assumptions. So this was an, a, a, a quote unquote, an historical study, the 19th century uh, historical geography. And on page two, um, there were the assumptions. So all factories are located uh, equidistant to, the, to their resources, to, the, uh, to, the, to, to, their, to their sources. But what? All factories are organized the same way. About half a page of these mm -hmm. assumptions. And I thought, well, this is this is surely madness. Whatever conclusions you're going to draw, <laughs> surely won't reflect what was actually happening in the 19th century. Their, their assumptions were not listed there in order to be contradicted later. These were these assumptions. What you rebelled against was that these assumptions were sort of a cheese grater through which the entire rest of the material had to be passed. Correct. Absolutely yes. correct. And in fact, the history of it, if I may, was uh, the information. In other words, history provides data that one can feed into a theory. Right. Which is really what was yes. being proved here. You can't overlook or can't assume away all of those variables. And that's what I mean by the context. What, the, what this article was doing was saying that context doesn't matter. And the historian in me is yeah. saying... That context is, in a way, all that matters. So we see this is this is very nice. We've gotten right to like a, we've got we've combined personal experience and you know deep philosophical angst um, that we've managed to get to right to the heart of the matter. That the um, the sort of the I mean I try to read a lot of historical sociology and I've benefited a lot from it. 
but there's always, you know, a way in which I feel like I'm the the dust stained traveler coming into a Western saloon, you know, <laughs> with my travel duster just tucked back over the butt of my revolver, just where I can, you know, get at it, just in case there's black Bart. This happens to be in there. There's something bad might happen. And you have a bandolier of Foucault across you, right? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I, uh, yeah, it's just in case, just <laughs> when things get really ugly. Um, <laughs> we don't want to use it too often, but when you need it, you need it. Um, this yet, I, I know I can hear many of my dear friends who are, you know, uh, social scientists coming right back at us and saying, gosh, isn't that just precious of you historians? You, uh, you love your context and you just don't refuse to accept lessons from the past. And I'm saying this to a guy who writes books called like the history of the future and makes prognostications. So I think you're ideally placed to respond to that. Um, it it, it is just, the argument. Are we just antiqu- just antiquarians after all? That which is what what is what we would be. You know, we're just uh, we're just footnote collectors. We're just obsessed with the minutia and the details, and then we always lose sight of the big picture. We're never going to get to Isaac Asimov's foundation at this rate. Well, and it's especially that last part that uh, that in isn't it precious that we're interested in context, but what can you do with it? And so mm-hmm. there, and and you'd mentioned, for instance, historical sociology, and I agree with you. There's some really good historical sociology, uh, and I've I've long benefited from it. But I think one of the the the, the bigger complaints, or uh, uh, one of the ways in which I think we're dismissed as historians, is that uh, we refuse to develop sort of general covering law theories. So you can study historians can study revolutions but are at pains to come up with a theory of revolutions as, as say a social scientist might, mm. a sociologist or somewhat. And you're right. Uh, I, as someone who thinks a lot about the future, uh, I think a lot about these issues. In fact, part of what, uh, part of what got me interested in the study of the future was, was indeed thinking about these questions of historical context <laughs> and what that signals about what the past is able to tell us about the future. Um, I've been bolstered, I think, uh, when I started learning more and, and studying in some detail um, the work of physicists and other scientists that were working in chaos theory and nonlinear science. People that were uh, people who study or work with complex systems oftentimes talk about systems that are sensitive to initial conditions. And sensitivity to initial conditions is something that. Uh, it's a it's a feature of complex systems which makes them unpredictable. So depending on those initial conditions, a system could veer off in this direction or this direction. That's the whole butterfly effect phenomenon. A, fl- a butterfly flapping its wings somewhere in West Africa can disturb the atmosphere such that it creates a hurricane in, in the Atlantic. But what's oftentimes not said about the butterfly fl- effect is that butterfly could flap its wings and have no effect. <laughs> So we should give some examples of importance. I, I, I guess we should. I would like to get to uh, how you teach about this uh, to undergraduates. Um, you said this leads to impassioned debate. I'd like to hear about that impassioned debate. This is the art versus the science, and that's always about context. Um, but then, when you're, is this something? Well, start, let's start with that, and we'll move on to how you work through this in classroom. In the classroom. So uh, I teach a course, uh, in fact, I'm teaching it right now, uh, our Introduction to Historical Methods, sophomore level class, uh, required <laughs> class for all You're primed majors. for this conversation then. I am. Oh, I'm absolutely primed. And in fact, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite classes. Uh, I don't know about most of my it's colleagues, but I'm always very eager to teach it. Uh, I get the sense that some of my colleagues are sort of less inclined to do it. I, I, I teach it as often as I'm, as I'm able uh, because we spend uh, the, the the purpose of the class, uh, at least as I teach it, is to learn about how history gets produced. And we start at the beginning. We start with uh, how documents are made, how documents are. Uh, we talk about the circumstances around document creation, how documents get preserved, how historians access them, how we analyze them, how we turn those into uh, 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 narratives, uh, how our narratives circulate among historians. And in going through this process, uh, uh, the students sort of feel that, well, being as uh, uh, the historical method 
is a very sort of scientific process in that we rely on evidence, that, uh, that we have sort of rules of evidence and how we draw inferences from it. In that sense, history looks like a, like a, like a very scientific sort of discipline. But at the same time, in talking about things like inference, um, we talk about the role that uh, the historical imagination plays in, uh, in, in reconstructing or writing about or representing the past. And so when we start talking about imagination, that makes history seem more like a, uh, a narrative art. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's the, then the genesis of the debate. So is history science or art? Uh, and my students mm-hmm. um, uh, eventually come to settle that it's sort of both and. Uh, for exactly this reason. And it's within that context, then we talk about context. We talk about uh, the historian's uh, interest in uh, understanding complexity. Uh, I had mentioned uh, nonlinear science non, uh, and, and complexity theory, that, uh, that scientists uh, have, have sort of patted themselves on the back because they formalized complex systems, to which I say, you know, historians have always studied complex systems. Maybe we didn't have the formal mathematics, but history has always uh, involved the study of complex systems. So how would you, so, so in many ways, the context is, we could call it context complexity. Context mm-hmm. is sort of the, the ability to recognize complexity and then to describe its influence upon whatever particularity you're studying. Yep, that's uh, that's a really really good definition. Yes. How then do you go about that? Um, I find it. Uh, I've probably spent too much time doing this theory first, rather than uh, I, I've now decided that probably throwing people in the pool was the best way of teaching them swimming. Even though I'm not going to be doing that myself, I would find that hard to do. But certainly in the history class, I could throw them into something and then do context for. It. Is that is that how you do it? Which end do you do? do you, introduce a theory and then a practice, or do you just start with practice and then try to tease theory out of it? Uh, I start with practice uh, because then the theory has a kind of, um, I don't know, a phenomenological basis. Uh, uh, As I talk theory, I can point back to the specific. I can tell you about the particular exercise that that I do. Please. Um, Yeah. And it's it's a sort of thing that that I can do in, in a single class period. Uh, but, uh, so I, I have students, uh, uh, do, uh, historic, uh, read some historical documents. And so, uh, because we have the, uh, at Ohio state, we have the bird polar archive. Uh, uh, I have access to, uh, uh, uh all these, uh, all these sorts of archival materials. And I did a project, uh, with the, the bird archive a few years ago. Uh, and so what I do is I create a, uh, a, a, a situation. Uh, I give the students about a dozen documents of varying length, uh, but exploring uh, uh, Richard Byrd's, Admiral Richard Byrd's uh, 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 expedition to the Antarctic in, in 1928 that included a Boy Scout. There was a national competition mm-hmm. uh, who was going to be the Boy Scout. Paul Exactly, exactly. And so the, 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 uh, the question I asked my students is, why did he win? Why, mm-hmm. why was he selected? Yeah, why did he win? And uh, so uh, the simple answer is, and now I'm giving the answer away to future generations of students who uh, take this class. Now, the simple <laughs> answer is he was the most qualified. He was, he was hands down the most qualified. Uh, in fact, hyper qualified. And the reason that's significant is in reading the documents you see that there were efforts at nepotism. Uh, uh, famous uh-huh. and influential people would write Bird and say, hey, uh, my son or my nephew would be really great at this. How about selecting him? And the evidence is pretty clear that had zero effect on the final choice. Uh, it really was sort of qualifications because, you know, this was a dangerous, it was a dangerous expedition. I know all sorts of people traveling in Antarctica. He was, a, he, was like, hey, he was a really good he was a really good Eagle Scout. I mean, he could probably, you yeah. know, make fire by pressing ice together in his hands. And I think he, I know this because he went on to become, I think, the foremost polar scientist of the next generation, didn't he? That's absolutely correct. Yes. And we talk about that. Yeah. We, we, we say, was that at all influential? The fact that he went on to become a polar scientist. And again, again, students sort of learn, well, that, that doesn't answer this question. It doesn't explain why he was selected here. No one was sort of imagining 
the sort of career he was going to have. But I have found, and it has to do with the way in which reading is taught in our schools, at least in our public schools, that students are taught uh, that reading is about searching for uh, keywords. I've actually witnessed this myself in observing some classrooms, that reading a, uh, like a, like a textbook typically or any sort of book is to uh, search out the key terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I've, I've, I've watched teachers, they'll hand out you know, like worksheets, read chapter 13, uh, here are the key words, uh, identify and define them. And that's what it means to, to read. And uh, early on, that's what students do, I think, uh, when, when they encounter the, uh, the, the Boy Scout or the Sciple documents. They look, well, mm-hmm. I just look for every reference to the word Sciple. And then I sort of answered it this way. And in doing so, of course, they missed the wider context, uh, the fact that there were these other sorts of uh, uh, efforts underway uh, to, uh, you know, like the nepotism and other sorts of things. Uh, there were these other efforts to, uh, uh, to uh, draw Bird's attention. And I said, you're missing uh, the context. You're missing the wider context. You come up with a much poorer answer uh, if you if you avoid that uh, that that wider context, and so we spend time talking about what does it mean to read documents, and reading documents in the way an historian does, it's very different from the way I think students are taught to read or expected to read uh, in uh, in their public schools. So right there from the beginning, we're learning about reading and uh, how to read for context, mm-hmm. and then we can yeah, have so theoretical me, discussions. Yeah, that's that's lovely. Um, we'll have to include that in the show notes. Um, so I'm thinking about context with that. Let's keep on running with this. Um, so I hear uh, in 1928, let's make this a sentence. We can then tease out context from it. In 1928, the bird expedition to Antarctica chose an Eagle Scout to accompany it. Okay. It's not, it's not a great sentence, but peace. Um, I immediately think Eagle Scouts. Well, that says something about the importance of scouting in 1928, mm-hmm. 1920s America. I mean, immediately I've got a context there, which, um, you know, these day, this day and age, uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when, when we were lads, um, we all knew who Eagle Scouts were in the area. And that was a big deal. It was still a big deal. Now it's not a big deal. Um, but even in the eighties, one wouldn't expect an Eagle Scout to make it to the moon. You know, that would right. be kind of, that would be cool. That would be cool, but that wasn't going to happen. Um, so it says something immediately. I'm thinking about that context. I'm thinking about Antarctic expeditions in 1928. Surely I could say, if I know something, the South Pole has already been achieved by 1928. If I yes, have some sort of contextual yeah, knowledge. Yes. It, yes. We know, so I know that. So what exactly, why is he going to Antarctica? This is what context allows me. Processing context, which uh, it, this takes us, everything is connected to everything else. This takes us right back to our very first conversation in the series with Daniel Willingham about comprehension and the the very hard problem of reading and Willingham's contention that reading is really dependent, whether we like it or not, on background knowledge. Um, That's right. This is contrary to a lot of theorists uh, prefer to believe, but um, you, if you don't know about Eagle Scouts or what an Eagle Scout is, if you don't know about something about Antarctic exploration, that sentence about Paul Seipel or an Eagle Scout being chosen in 1920 makes very little sense. That's right. Uh, we, uh, I had said that one of the things that I do in this exercise is uh, uh, get, teach students how to read, essentially, at a college level, certainly uh, uh, how historians read, and to sort of contrast that with the way that they had been taught to read uh, throughout their schooling. And so it's, it's really interesting that you, that you bring this up, because I turn this into a larger conversation about reading as a, uh, as a complex cognitive skill. These are students today that are, uh, they are history majors and they are resisting the pull of the STEM disciplines, which is where all, all their friends are majoring in STEM disciplines because that's where all the money is. That's where all the jobs are. And they're a little sheepish about, uh, ab- about history as a result. And one of the things that I, I, I tried to, uh, to impart is that reading is as complex a cognitive skill as are the STEM disciplines, the science, technology, math, and these sorts of things. We, uh, uh, 
just last week, my class uh, read a, uh, a short piece uh, that appeared in uh, Nautilus talking about a, uh, a, an AI uh, system at MIT called Genesis that's uh, reading and interpreting well, texts. That's not, that's not scary at all. <laughs> it's not at least scary. Well, and frankly, Why do they call really it Prometheus? Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, uh, so, uh, if I can simplify it, this is uh, this is an algorithm that uh, that they they fed, and and, and I'll uh, be sheepish about this at first. They 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 feed them the play uh, uh, Macbeth, and after hmm. quote unquote reading it, the algorithm comes back with uh, that the that the play is about um, um, revenge. Which is, you know, that's pretty darn good. That's that that that's pretty good. The word revenge doesn't necessarily appear, I think, in the text. And to say that it that, that the play is about revenge, that's a I think that's a pretty good reading. Until you read the fine print. So they didn't actually feed it the uh, the play Macbeth. They fed it uh, one hundred a one hundred uh, sentence summary of the play, and that one hundred sentence uh, uh, summary was written in sort of modern English. Uh, and it removes all the metaphors and uh, analogies and other sorts of uh, language. So I tell my students, in fact, what the computer is reading is like a Sparks Notes version of uh, of, him, of, uh, of Macbeth. Uh, and in fact, yeah. uh, what we say is that one of the things that in order to get the the algorithm to quote unquote read is that you have to eliminate a lot of the context. Yeah. The context yeah. that we grasp yeah, and I'm, we understand. So you, you're absolutely right. All the all the contextual information we must have in order to read and read effectively is a is a centerpiece of of reading. I think as a as a complex cognitive skill. Mm -hmm. And then without that, we can't make connections, um, which you know, which also we talked about with John Heilbrunn, uh, the the ability to make connections from, in his case, from a portrait. To gosh, twenty different different uh, uh, from a portrait he created a web of of seventeenth century connections, and that relies upon reading context as well. I mean, he had to know. I mean, of course, as an as a noted scholar of Galileo, he recognized Galileo's front, the frontispiece of of Galileo's book. That's a sort of uh, that's also, but that's contextual as well. I mean, without that, mm -hmm. you have no. There's no study. Could I return to a point that we uh, we started uh, some time back? Because I think this is also a critical critical part of understanding. Well, one, the way historians understand context, and I think two, what it is we do with historical knowledge, and that has to do with uh, historical analogies. It is, mm. yeah, uh, and, and we see it uh, practically every day in the news. Uh, but mm -hmm. the the assumption among among sort of non historians is that we can mine the past for lessons, lessons that we can apply to present day situations. And in the last couple David, of months, we, that's, we've that's had what a, people a, think. That's what people think. That's what people think that you do sometimes. It's right. And oh, they're absolutely. wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, <laughs> many so of them are other historians. But yeah. yeah. Some situation <laughs> in the present is exactly like some situation right. in the past. And so therefore, and we will therefore be something in the future. Yes. Do what they did. That sort of thing. We heard this a couple of months back yeah. with the, the fall of uh, Kabul, that uh, mm -hmm. that it was uh, uh, that it was the analogy is the fall of Saigon. And therefore, we draw mm -hmm. the same sort of lessons, uh, lessons from there. Uh, that was um, uh, almost inevitable that that uh, comparison was going to be drawn. Uh, but uh, uh, one could debate, and there was a debate, I think mostly among historians, to say, you know, maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the wrong analogy to draw. If we're going to draw any analogy, maybe we could uh, draw an analogy to Reagan in 1983 with the Marines in Lebanon. Why doesn't that mm -hmm. analogy spring? Why does, why does Saigon in 1975 spring? And this is something that if, historians listen, all well understand. If you listen to British podcasts, the analogies will be made to 
the first British retreat from Kabul, the, which led to a, the terrible destru- the destruction of the Afghan army. And then I think the also the second Afghan war, there was another sort of, there was another dip before they eventually triumphed. But these, those are the connections, which easy enough to make it to Afghanistan. It's Kabul. Yes. You know, of course you're going to make those analogies, right? Yes. But, but. And so, and, and I use the word analogy and in fact, they are analogy because the definition of an analogy is a similarity in the midst of apparent difference. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that, that far too often that those who use historical analogies kind of simplistically look only at similarity and not difference. And the differences in the situations matter a great deal. And those differences, well, those differences are context. So that uh, even, if we, if, even if we do want to use the analogy of Saigon, uh, as a way of understanding the fall of Kabul, uh, our first impulse is, well, maybe our first impulse is to see similarity, but it simply can't stop there. Saigon in 75, Kabul in 2021 are different situations. And I think we have to understand and grasp the differences in the context if we're going to make sense and if we're going to uh, inform any sort of decisions that we might make in the present. Yeah, and the uh, the Afghanistan analogies, uh, they create a eternal Afghan uh, who is always the same. They right. create an eternal Afghan, an eternal Afghan society which is always the same. Exactly. Uh, these sorts of analogies always do something else by ignoring context. They also erase any change over time. Uh, and if you're not talking about change over time, then you know you shouldn't really be in the history business. Um, That's right. I'm not really sure what, what else are we doing here. Exactly. Well, and uh, a critic could just as easily turn around and say, uh, well, we, we often, uh, historians often want to be consulted uh, when there are sort of big events like this or big momentous decisions, right? There was a, a famous onion uh, 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 picture <laughs> that said, you know, historians say, hey, before you make any big decision, you may want to consult with us first. Um, yeah. And so that's the sort of the, the flip side of this, the flip side of historical analogies that... Uh, that uh, that many things that we think of as new and unprecedented maybe aren't as unprecedented as we might think, and that we can uh, gain insight, uh, not uh, direct applicable lessons, but I think we can gain insights from analogies and especially but, uh, the context that that uh, presents. Now, we've talked about this before with you when you're, we're talking about the history of the future, but um, to push back, uh, just to keep it real. Um, Push away. <laughs> when I when I see these presidential historians, uh, quotation marks intended, um, appear on say the news hour, um, it seems they make a very good living by offering lots of miscellane a miscellany of anecdotes, uh, a jumble of analogies, uh, which um, I'm not always sure what the hell it's supposed to tell me about the reconciliation package that's in Congress. Um, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It seems to me instead I'm bombarded with, um, damn facts, uh, one fact after another. Uh, and, uh, is the intention or Al, do you suppose the intention is, uh, to sort of mine the past for, uh, a sense of certainty about how things will play out? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think I I think that's what the producer of the TV program <laughs> intends. I'm I'm, I'm not going to pin that one on the presidential historian, but I'm pretty damn certain that uh, pre, that producers want that. Um, at least yes, or no, to give I, that, I they, you're right they, there. they might even believe it. I mean, it's better TV that way. That's for sure. Why else consult an historian? Uh, so, and you're right. Uh, on, on your program, we've, we've talked before about uh, my, my particular approach to the future, uh, which is not to make mm-hmm. predictions, but to posit several possible uh, 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 situations or contexts. Uh, uh, futurists uh, think in terms of multiple or plural scenarios rather than single predictions. Mm-hmm. And for me, that comes, uh, I think, from my training as an historian and in my understanding, especially of context, so that uh, when I when I search the past for for analogies for some sort of situation, uh, what that what that provides me, I think, is not the certain path forward, 
but rather the possibilities that this particular situation in this particular context presents us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, if I if I look, for instance, at you know the the differences between uh, Kabul and Saigon, for instance, uh, a huge difference that has to be uh, uh, taken uh, in in mind has to be taken in mind is just the attitude of the general public toward the war at that particular stage. A very, yep. very different situation between where how Americans were feeling in 1975 versus our attitude today in 2021. Uh, in fact, Attitudes I think of uh, Congress, before the fall of Kabul, different. yeah, I think before the fall of Kabul, I think uh, the typical American might even forgotten that, uh, that we still had mm-hmm. troops in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, very different situation than in 75. And I bring that up as a way to say, if you want to try to understand then where things go from here, what the future is going to look like, uh, we have to understand that it that the future won't unfold in exactly the same way as it did after uh, after the fall of Saigon. Uh, that there are that there are other possibilities that we have to consider, and it's and again it comes back to the differences in the context in both situations. As we're um heading towards the end here and starting to wrap up. I'm, I'm curious, um, are there historians from whom you have uh, learned the most regarding context? I mean, in, in, in a way, that's a very strange question to ask that I, uh, in a way that non-historians listening don't appreciate because every historian should be teaching you something about context. Um, but what I mean is, is that there are but there are certain historians who do it in a certain way. And I think I suspect, um, so, you know, I wrote a biography, a historical biography, and I realized early on in, in, in writing it that uh, the thing that made a historical biography or, or biography by a historian different is there's going to be a heck of a lot of context. And Amazon reviews agree. <laughs> and some of them complain about it. There's just too much, you know, context. Uh, but for me, um, I'm not really, sh- I, I don't see what a historian gives. I'm not a literary biographer, um, didn't have a literary, t- a literary subject. I'm not a military historian. What I was interested in is the context, the social and cultural context of my subject and how he reflected it and also illuminated it in interesting ways. Um, so I, I suspect that it was in reading other, um, well, I'll give you an example. I'm, uh, Julie Flavel was a, a sort of uh, independent historian in England. And she wrote a book called When London Was Capital of America. Um, In a way, she didn't say anything about late 18th century London that I didn't already know in a broad way. But she was able to use it to show me all sorts of contextual ways in which uh, Londoners and other England uh, Englers increasingly didn't understand British Americans, even as British Americans sought in the 1760s to be ever more British. And that was a fantastic exercise in context, you know, where British Americans went to the coffee house, where they went to the theater, where did, uh, where did they keep their enslaved? How did the enslaved react to being in London? on and on and on and on. And that was in some ways a masterly exercise in building up a context for the political, social, military events that were not yet envisaged that were about to happen in 1775. So uh, I'll give two examples of this because I do have a, a, a rather concrete answer to historians who influenced me. Um <laughs> So um, uh, I think either as an undergraduate or maybe I just started graduate school, uh, and this is a very, very old book, but Crane Britton wrote Anatomy of Revolution. Very old book. I think it dated to the 19, late 30s or maybe the early 40s. Uh, and it was a sort of uh, a comparative study of revolution. The American Revolution, French, the Russian Revolution, there, there, there must have been others. Um, and one of my takeaways from the book is, can we um, generalize about revolution? Um, and I guess another way of saying that is, you know, can we develop a theory of revolution by studying these historical examples? And I think I left 
uh, my reading of, of Crane Britain was that maybe we can't do that, 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 that each revolution, I mean, there are maybe common themes between them, but it was in particular mm. the context, the contextual differences that mattered the most, such that a theory of revolution becomes, uh, uh, becomes well, challenging, if not, if not uh, impossible. Let me come back with an example of my own. We can do dueling examples here. And I'll come up with one, fortunately, from the, the podcast. Uh, David Bell, Men on Horseback, um, looks at revolutionary leaders from 1775 to 1830. He goes through Washington, uh, Napoleon, Toussaint L'Ouverture, and Simon Bolivar, and describing the similarity of the area, but also the difference. So the similarity is that literally they are all men on horseback, that this age right. of democratic revolutions depends on military men who ride white horses and who are depicted as such. And yet all of whom are, well, okay, Napoleon's complex case, um, uh, sort of either are part of a democratic revolution and then do or do not forward it onwards. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating way in which he's, um, there's no sort of theory. There's no anatomy. This is, they're all alike. It's merely indicating a sort of similarities and also the radically different contexts of each one, but then also very interesting similarities. So the way that he both covers, focuses, teases out the context, but also then shows certain congruities is I think a fascinating sort of dance that he does throughout the book. That's brilliant. I've not read the book but my anticipation of David, Ar David Armitage's uh, book on uh, civil war, sort of 3,000 year history of civil wars, uh, I suspect I will have the same sort of, uh, uh, of experience that I won't get a theory of civil war, but I will uh, understand the, the, the very, very broad contexts uh, of civil war. Uh, that is on my reading list. So uh, the historian okay. that was maybe most influential was my, uh, my graduate advisor. Uh, uh, Alan Bayerschen, uh, who is a German historian, uh, but was uh, a polymath and incredibly well read and, and um, uh, insisted that his students uh, read uh, beyond history. I had mentioned uh, earlier in this uh, in this conversation uh, that I had studied uh, sort of nonlinear science and, and chaos theory and uh, uh, the, mm -hmm. the sciences of complexity. Uh, that was at Alan's insistence. Uh, that, that we know something about this. And uh, I thank Alan uh, for introducing me to this, but also providing me a language to be able to talk about, uh, talk about these issues and to, frankly, think more clearly about what it means to, uh, to, to be an historian and to think like an historian, to watch what physicists and mathematicians were wrestling with uh, gave me insight to what I wrestle with as an historian. And it was from there that I began to develop the, the, the language to be able to say that, um, that historians are uh, complexity experts. And it's, it's precisely because we study uh, context and that we don't simply assume away context, uh, as, as you might find in other disciplines, that that may be the central feature of our, of our methodology, what sort of separates uh, or distinguishes the historian, say, from the sociologist or the economist or uh, or other sorts of uh, sort of social science scientists. So uh, I think in my graduate training, I was already um, um, uh, in tune with and very sensitive to these kinds of theoretical matters. And as I say, it 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 it, it helped me to develop a language to be able to discuss it, uh, both on your program and to be able to teach it uh, to my students. How do you, one last uh, question, when you teach an upper level um, history class, uh, an upper level class, which may not necessarily historical methods, how do you assess, how do you uh, encourage a student to do better at um, dealing with context? I mean, how, how does that, how does that emerge and how do you? That's a fine question. I think that if there's, if there's one thing I would say I would focus on is um, uh, in having discussions with students about causation. Mm -hmm. why, why did something happen? Or, or, or why did something not happen? Uh, some yeah. of the uh, upper division courses I'll teach, uh, uh, one that I teach in particular is uh, in historical imagination, 
where part of what we'll talk about is uh, uh, counterfactual history, historians writing counterfactuals, so that uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm helping students to understand not only what happened and why it happened, but what didn't happen, and maybe why didn't something happen. And so whenever we have conversations or whenever we're, we're trying to tease out causation, why, why did something happen? Um, I think it's, it, it's, it's in that context then that, that we introduce or that we have larger conversations about context, about the, about the situation. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, A.J.P. Taylor's uh, uh, famous um, sort of thought experiment about the, the traffic accident about uh, a, a, a guy who needs to get a packet of smokes uh, and so uh, drives on, uh, on, uh, in a car with, uh, with uh, uh, balding tires on a wet road on a rainy night uh, and is uh, 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 driving around a curve uh, and uh, runs into a pedestrian uh, on, on his way to his cigarettes. And he sort of imagines, uh, how would you explain to a judge uh, uh, why this happened, why this person was killed? And all the things that you could point to. I mean, the easiest example would be to say, uh, well, uh, the guy hit, uh, the, uh, uh, hit the person with his car. Uh, but you could just as easily point to other factors, such as the curvy road, uh, the fact that it was raining, the fact that the, uh, that the car had balding tires, the fact that the guy uh, uh, was uh, addicted to cigarettes and needed cigarettes. And if you changed any one of those conditions, you'd have a different outcome. And so in, in thinking through why things happen, why uh, events occur, um, uh, I have uh, debates with my students about whether there's such a thing called inevitability in history. Was World War I inevitable? Uh, and if so, at what stage was that the case? And again, that leads to all sorts of debates among my students. And the question about inevitability inevitably uh, rests on questions <laughs> of context, you change one feature of Europe, European society in the, in the two decades before 1914, uh, you potentially have a different outcome. Um, that is, that's something, that's a conversation that's well within the grasp, I think, of most undergraduates. Uh, uh, we, mm -hmm. we, we might think that that's only the, the kind of sophisticated arguments that, uh, that professional historians can have. But I have found through years of teaching that, uh, that undergraduates uh, uh, properly educated, properly trained, uh, can have really fruitful conversations about, about these matters. My guest today has been David Staley. David, uh, thank you once again for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you all. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. 